0: So let me do a quick reminder of where we were last week. Last week, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and he stood trial before the Sanhedrin, which was a group of Jewish high council leaders that was made up of um, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, the Jewish high priest was there. And during the trial, it was revealed, and this is what we talked about last week, it was revealed that the Jewish culture and the Roman culture valued human exaltation above God's authority in the world. They were more interested in the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen and less interested in the message that God had given to to spread to um, all mankind. And the Jewish high priests uh, and the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they were more interested in following their own personal laws that they had set up around God's laws than listening to anything that Paul had to say. And we looked at this issue that humans always have, where we have a desire to elevate our preferences and our ways of life and our things that we think are important above God's standards and God's authorities. And and how the Bible sees that as human exaltation. It's all, we're exalting humanity above God. And we're saying that it doesn't matter if you got it right or wrong, what we have to say about a thing is more relevant and therefore we'll listen to that and not what he has to say. That's what kind of came out last week. And out of that, the uh, culmination of human exaltation was that we're not going to get Paul to stop talking about what he thinks is important, which is what God says is important. So the best course of action is just to take him out. We're going to remove him. And so a group of 40 guys got together and they hatched this plot where uh, they agreed, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. We're going to try and kill Paul. So the, the best way to solve this problem is just get Paul, just remove him So that is essentially where we ended up last week. He left Jerusalem and ended up in a city called Caesarea. And before we get into Acts 24, where he is in Caesarea, I'd like to give you a little bit of context for some of the things that are taking place. And I apologize because I probably should have done this sooner. As soon as we started talking about the temple, I should have given you some context for what the city and the temple looked like. So we're gonna rectify that today. I wanna give you some context for what the city looked like, where Paul was when some of these events took place. And I wanna show you a map of how we got from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And if you are on Slack, I posted a video earlier this week uh, uh, with some um, footage of uh, Caesarea today. There, uh, there's some amazing archaeological discoveries of what the city looks like. You get a context of probably what, what, w- what the city would have looked like while Paul was there. And you also got to listen to this guy with a very sexy voiceover uh, say all of it. He, he's, and I apologize for that. But he's just like, Caesarea, the crown jewel of the new... T-. I'm like, man... My father-in-law said just put it on two times speed and he sounds normal. I think that's good advice. So here's what I wanna do. Let's go to, um, I wanna show you uh, an aerial map of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Jesus and also at the time of Paul. So this is first century Jerusalem. So what we're looking at here is the entire city, okay? Now, some of these dots on here, you won't be able to see like what this is. Um, So I'm gonna post this uh, later so that you can get a closer look at this. But just for context, this is about the size of what the city looked like. And just to kind of help you understand for scale, um, I couldn't, there's not a banana I could put up for scale, but something that might be helpful would be like maybe a football field. Um, So a standard football field, 100 yards, that's probably about like this corner right here. Okay? Just for scale. So what we're looking at here is, um, there's this outer wall, right? And then there's people living in here in the city. Um, You've got the Mount of Olives up here, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And then right here, this big structure is called the Temple Mound. Now what's interesting about the Temple Mound is this is the location where they built the, well, they rebuilt Solomon's Temple. So just a quick recap of Jewish history. You've got um, uh, Moses and uh, the Israelites are coming out of bondage. They have this tent, which is called the Tabernacle. They're wandering around the wilderness. They eventually come into the Promised Land. They set up. Uh, the, uh, the tabernacle, uh, eventually David comes along. He wants to build a house for God, a permanent place. God says, I'm gonna have your son do it. So his son Solomon builds the first temple and it's essentially a large representation of the small tent that they traveled around in the wilderness. And this is kind of what it looked like. It was on this big structure. Uh, this is the surrounding area and then this would have been the temple. Uh, it got decimated when the Babylonians came in and then under... Um, uh, whoever took over the the Babylonians, um, the, they were released, Israelites were released to come back to the promised land and rebuild, okay? And so that's essentially what we're looking at here. They started rebuilding this temple. You can read about it in like the book of Nehemiah. They started rebuilding this temple, and then r- right around about a, a 50 years before the turn of this, uh, before of uh, well, before Jesus was born, I guess. Uh, Herod the Great came in and he started making modifications to it. And he just went over the top. And he started adding to... This structure here by adding all of these structures here. And so, what you're looking at is it's a multi tiered structure. You've got um, th- this is kind of raised up on a couple floors. So, down here, you've got entrance ways in here to get in, and then there's kind of these walkways kind of think of it like an escalator in an airport. Where you're like going up to the second story, and then you come out into this big open area. All right. Uh, and what I'd like to show you now so, we're going to zoom in here on this area. If you go to the next slide, this is what what it would have looked like. So there was kind of an entrance over here and then there's these covered stairways. There's a gate over here that, en- that enters in. And so there's, there's structures and stuff here on the bottom, but the main stuff is right here up on top. This is the actual temple. Over here on the side, would have called the Gentile's courtyard. There's this structure called Solomon's portico. It's kind of like an outdoor port. It's got, um, like a roof over the top of it, but it's outside. You'll, as you read through the early parts of Acts, a lot of things take place on Solomon's portico. Uh, There's a, a guy who gets healed there. But right over here, okay, so you've got the temple, but right over here, you've got this little structure called the Antonia Fortress. Now this was added on, and this is essentially where Rome is keeping their kind of fist as they're overlooking. So you've got this entire temple structure and you got this little fortress over here. And who's in the fortress? It's the Romans, because they're the occupying force. And so what happens when Paul comes back to Jerusalem and a big ruckus starts coming up, he's out here in the Gentile courtyard. He had come into the temple, be purified, but he's out here in the Gentile courtyard and some of the Jews from Asia start raising issues with Paul and a huge mob is formed and it starts over here in this area. Now, what I want to do is I want to zoom in on this Antonia fortress. If you go to the next slide. Now we're over here in this corner. Right around here is where the, the big mob would have started The Romans grabbed him. They pulled him up. He gets up to the top of these stairs and right around here in Acts 21, 40 is where Paul addresses the people. And he's all bloody and he addresses the people and they listen to him for a little bit. But as soon as he gets to the part about the Gentiles, they're like, we don't want to hear anymore. Well, he gets arrested and he gets brought into this little section in here. And so this is where most of, uh, he was being held down here in this area. He was brought out of this area to go over and meet with the Sanhedrin, and it didn't go well. Uh, And so this is where he was located before uh, the night that his nephew came and said there's a plot to kill Paul. And so what they do is, Paul says go and tell the guy in charge he doesn't like it. They put together a army of like 200 guys and they take Paul out of Jerusalem, out of this area, and they head up to the city of Caesarea. And if you go to the next slide, this is the map from that, that he took that night. So it's the middle of the night, 200 guys. They're over here in Jerusalem. They head up this way. They stop in this little town called Antipatris. Uh, and then the next morning, the rest of the guys take him up to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a really, really cool place. It's this kind of beach town. It's sitting right on the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of stony, but it's also got sand everywhere. It was essentially... kind of like the retreat vacation spot for Herod, and there was also a ruling area there for whoever was the governor over the Judean region, and at this point it would have been Felix. So Paul gets there, and that is essentially where we pick up the story. Last week, he arrived in Caesarea, so he's here, and today we're going to pick up what happens while he's there. You with me? Let's get to it. All right. So go to Acts chapter 24, verses uh, starting in verse 1. So he's in Caesarea, and it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. Just a quick pause. I just showed you a map where Jerusalem is actually south of Caesarea, but every time you read about it in the New Testament, people going to and from Jerusalem, you were always going up to Jerusalem even if it's south from where you are. And the reason why that was is because Jerusalem sat up on a hill, but also the temple was in Jerusalem. And no self-respecting Jew would have discussed going to the temple of God in any other terms than going up to the temple of God, okay? And we'll also cover that when we get into the Psalms of Ascent uh, message series. But the reason, I, like that, that's come up a couple times, I just want to Reference that, um, and and some of the Romans they catch that language too. They'll uh, even Caesarea is north. They'll say I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and I went down from Jerusalem, uh, or I went down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, even though it's north. So just a little side note. So some of the elders and spokesmen, one of them, Tertullus, came and he was speaking. He said they laid before the governor their case before Paul. So we've got a trial before us now. All right. So imagine Paul sitting there in a courtroom and you've got the Sanhedrin, they've come up, or excuse me, they've come down from Jerusalem, and they are there to cite their case on why they think Paul should come back to Jerusalem and he should be tried there. And Felix is the governor at the time, and he's listening to this case. Verse two, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, and this is how Tertullus started off his argument. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, oh, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. And in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. You see what he's doing? He's buttering him up. He's flattering him. To detain you, no further. So I'm going to do you a favor. To detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accused him. And the Jews who were there also joined in the charge, affirming everything as so. Now this is interesting. Because the council has hired outside council to represent them. This guy, Tertullus, he was probably a Hellenistic Jew, definitely well versed in the communication style of the time, which always led with flattery. This was a big part of Roman oration. The idea that if you're going to get your audience to listen to you, you have to earn the right and establish your credibility. And one of the best ways to do it is flatter the people. You guys are smart folks. You're brilliant. Some of the best church people who've ever sat in church chairs before. You see, (laughs) I see what you're doing, but a little more. He begins with flattery and essentially is arguing the case that this is not worth his time. And he throws out some accusations here. He says that he is the leader of riots, that he is the leader of this sect of Judaism called the Nazarenes, and he profanes the temple. But what's interesting is that this guy doesn't offer any evidence. He only offers accusations. He leads with accusations because his goal is not to seek the truth. This is important. He's leading with accusation because his goal is not to seek the truth and to discover whether Paul is or is not in the right. His goal is to get custody of Paul so he can kill Paul. That's the only end goal. This is the reason why there is no evidence introduced into this case, and everything rests on accusations. And I think it is helpful for us to consider the way that this argument is being framed, because I think if there was ever a time in history where we should probably pay more attention to the arguments that are being made before us on whether they contain accusations or actual facts. Because if somebody is arguing a case based off of accusation, and not fact, it always has this way of revealing the ulterior motive. And I'm, I'm saying this because I think it should color the way you watch the news. But I think it should also color the way that you process your own thoughts. Right, like I'll go there, I'll say most of the news isn't based on fact, it's based on accusation. And the reason why is because there's a motive. The motive is not to seek the truth and reveal the truth because no one likes what the actual truth is. The goal is something else. And I'm not here to discuss what the goal is because there's lots of different goals for wanting to disseminate misinformation. But the goal of most of society, when they broadcast information, is not fact-based, it is accusation-based. And the reason why that is, is because the end goal is not to seek fact and change lies, the end goal is to further an agenda. You, You following me? But we can't just leave it there. Because this goes even deeper than just what other people are doing. This infiltrates the very way that you make decisions today. And what I mean by that is, if you're thinking to yourself, I don't like that person. I don't want to be in community with that person. I don't want to give that person the benefit of the doubt. Start asking yourself why you're jumping to that conclusion. Well, this person said this, or they, or they did that. And we start in our mind, start rationalizing these accusations, It's almost like in our own head, we become this lawyer that's prosecuting this other person who is not giving any defense. And what's interesting most of the time is that we never consider actual evidence. And I do this often in counseling appointments where somebody will say, I have this issue with this person. All right, awesome then walk me through the very specific things that this person has done that has led you to this conclusion on this person. Well, I just kind of feel like blank. I just kind of think this. Well, I got bad news for you. Your feelings and what you think, those aren't facts. Has the person actually committed this offense? No, but I seem like they, they, they seem like one of those kind of people who would. <laughs> Do you see how we, even as Transformed called people of God, fall into the same trap of, the, of what these folks are doing here in the courtroom? Imagine your mind is a courtroom. You start rationalizing unchristian behavior. Because your entire case is built off of accusation and not actual biblical facts. And even if the person, you can cite these specific facts that does not necessarily lead you to whatever conclusion you would like to make on a matter, there are still the facts of the word of God informing what you were supposed to think and what you are supposed to do that is often contrary to what you think you should be doing and what you should be thinking. Are you following me here? Now this is, this is rough water because the moment I start talking like this, everyone's just like, eh, I know how you vote. I know, what, I know what TV shows you watch. I know how you're registered to vote. I, I, I know how you think on these one, two, three, and these four issues. The problem with that is exactly what I'm arguing for. The fact that we take concepts or ideas or we just assume things about people and we turn those into facts that form how we're going to treat other people when many times it is the complete opposite of what you have formed in your mind about that person. And so the question we have to ask ourselves are, why am I forming these opinions that are not necessarily based on facts? Oh, is it because I have an ulterior motive? Is it because I'm trying to excuse myself from living biblically so that I can just have my own freedom and do the things that I wanna do without having to live in the messiness of being a part of this person's life? You you follow where I'm going with this? I think it's an important teaching point for our time. It's not necessarily where I'm going, but I didn't wanna miss this moment for us to call attention to the fact that society is discipling us in a way where facts aren't important anymore. Feelings are the only thing that have any value. Experiences, thoughts, what someone else has said about a thing because of what they experience or or how they feel or, or what they think, that's become the foundation for the things that we're building society on. And it's sand, it's not solid rock. And I think we should be very careful of the way that we continue to let the society disciple the way we make decisions when the word of God has already told us how we're supposed to make decisions. There are are universal truths that God has revealed about himself that are not up for negotiation because he was the creator, and you either believe those things and build on those things, or you exalt humanity above those things, and you're gonna suffer the repercussions because he has a date on his calendar where he is coming back to judge humanity for that very thing. Okay, let's keep going. Go to verse 10. It says, when the governor had nodded to him, so, so now we've heard the prosecution speak, now we're gonna hear the defense. When the governor had nodded to him, speak, to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it has not been more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem, and went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd or either in the temple or the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they now bring what they now bring up against me. See, there's no evidence. They're, they're not actually proving anything. They're just making accusations. So this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect. They're calling a branch off of Judaism. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Oh, that's interesting. Because he's making the claim that Christianity isn't something else. It's actually the complete and true fulfillment of everything that it, it means to be Jew. To be Jewish, to be a person of God, the complete fulfillment of that is not found in the law. It is found in the person, Jesus, who fulfilled the law. That's, that is mind-blowing. To look at the way that Paul is viewing this, because in, in our times, we're like, well, Christianity is, is different than everything. What Paul is saying is, no, this, the way, the church, it is the fulfillment of everything he's done previous. He didn't come up with a backup plan. This has always been the plan. That's highly controversial. Verse 15, it says, Having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there is, will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have clear conscience toward both God and man. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, um, but some Jews from Asia, and they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when they stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I know that they take issue with is when I cried out standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial for you this day. Now let's pause right there. So the, the prosecution has made their case and they haven't given any facts, it's all accusation, and the, res, the defense has responded with facts. Here's the facts, Paul was in Jerusalem for less than 12 days, not even long enough for them for him to do what they said he was doing, which is raising up all of these mobs. The way, Christianity, is not a sect of, Jude, uh, of Judaism. It is actually the complete fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. In fact, Paul was bringing alms to Jerusalem. That is actual money that you can go and you can count in the hands of people that he gave it to. Proof of why he was there. In fact, Paul was purified publicly when he paid the fee to those guys who were on the Nazarite vow. You can go talk to those guys. You can interview them. You can see the money and the deposit that he made. And that's when the riot started. So we're looking at a court case. And to me, that is what is most jarring. Now what I'm about to do here is I'm going to invite you to start considering that the way that you read the Word is an invitation to not just stare at the text on the screen, but to do this thing that cameras can do, which is zoom in and zoom out. If you don't develop in your mind the capacity to be able to zoom in and zoom out, you're either going to stare at a small fraction of it and build bad theology at the expense of the larger story or you're gonna expand so wide and build theology on the wide part of the story and miss the specific applications. But I want you as a healthy church to develop the cultivation of saying, all right, we're in 24 and all we're doing is talking about a court case. What does that look like in comparison to 20 other chapters of nothing but nonstop miracles, you see what I'm doing here? We're staring at 24, but now I want you to zoom out. The early trajectory for the book of Acts was filled with miracles, transfiguration. You remember the guy who baptized the guy, and then all of a sudden, whoop, he's like 20 miles down in another city? There's missions, there's church planning, there's people grabbing sweaty rags from Paul just to go give it to grandma who's sick and she gets healed. There's stories of this this guy who thought he could cast out demons and then these demons just like send these seven guys, this one demon sends these seven guys out of the house like completely naked and just running for the hills. We have got some miraculous events. You remember Pentecost? Remember mass salvations? You remember Paul coming into a town and preaching the gospel and whole families getting saved? Remember Peter having this vision one day of, of this food he can't eat? And then as he's having the vision, there's a guy at the door saying, hey, God told me you were having a vision. Yeah, actually was. And he goes to Caesarea and he witnesses to Cornelius. Pretty miraculous events taking place. And now we're staring at Acts 24, and it's a courtroom. And there's suffering, and there's trials, and there's politics, and there's long periods of waiting, and there's nothing but court cases. It is easy for us in comparison mode to say, well, it sure seems like God was moving at the first half of Acts, but it doesn't seem like he's moving much anymore in the second half of Acts. And that's exactly how you can treat your own life. It sure seems like God was moving when I was younger, or it sure seems like God was moving in that old church or that old season with those old friends and their old thing, but it just doesn't seem like God's doing a whole lot right now. Let's go to facts. Is it that God is not moving or is it that you don't have eyes to see what he's actually doing? Because what we're about to see is not God has stopped moving, we're going to see him moving in a different way and in a way we're often very uncomfortable with because it is boring and normal. Now, follow me here, because if you track the trajectory of most people in the Old Testament, who we would find in, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, we're like, man, well, this guy, he saw the burning bush, right? Or like Samson, like he killed like all of these dudes with just one jawbone of a donkey. Like, man, these amazing moments where God just showed up in tremendous ways. Elijah, he's just He's he's praying with these prophets of Baal, and all of a sudden, fire comes down out of heaven. There's these huge moments and we're like, man, I want to live my life for those big moments. Well, guess what? You read the entire Bible, and you find out that most guys had two, maybe three big moments in their entire life. So the question is, what else was filled? What else filled their life? If you look at a guy who lived like 80 years old, and the Bible records two really miraculous, profound moments where it is clear to everyone God showed up and did a thing. What happened to the other 79 years of his life where there is no miraculous moment happening? Is God not working unless it's in a huge miraculous moment? No. He's working every single day while you're sitting in traffic. I know he's not. No, he's not. Yes he is. He is forging something on the inside of you that we as a society has lost which is called patience. <laughs> that's the reason I'm convinced. That's the reason why most uh, department or stores uh, like big box stores, Walmart's, Publix, when you go to them, you can't even find a person who's working there checking you out anymore. You have to check yourself out. Why? Because Why? the Lord's inviting us to be patient. Because guess what? No one's been trained on that. But now you get to be an employee and bag your own groceries. And so you've got like, well, I've got a month's worth of groceries. And I'm saying, I don't know what the code for bananas is. And just like, I just want a pack of gum. Can we just, all I wanted was this gum. There are so many invitations that the Lord is giving us to learn and craft and cultivate just simple things like the fruit of the Spirit. He puts people in your life that are just sour, just mean. Why, Lord? Why why are you you doing this? Because I want you to learn (laughs) long-suffering, long-suffering. because this is what I want out of my people. I don't want people who will, who will just choose the easy path and pick shortcuts. I want people who will put down deep roots and commit long periods of time to the things that I'm doing because good things don't grow overnight. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to verse 22. It says, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, well that's fascinating, that's interesting, right? How does this governor in Caesarea have an accurate understanding or knowledge of the way? Is it because before this event even took place, he had already seated the city with a guy named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, and loved talking about the things that the Lord had done in his life? Was it possibly because there was another evangelist in the city named Philip, who had three daughters who prophesied? Was it because there was a house church that was hopping every Sabbath, and everybody knew about what was, or was it actually his wife, Drusilla, who was the wife of Herod Agrippa I, the guy who killed the apostle James. You see the way that God orchestrates things for specific moments in, in history? It's fascinating. So you've got this guy who has Paul in front of him, and he's, he's just like, I know a little bit about you. So what does he do with that? Let's, let's keep reading. He says, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He says, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but having some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attesting, attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, oh, wow, 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 right? Paul gets an opportunity to speak to the governor and what does he talk to the governor about? Self-control. Am I the only one that thinks that's funny? Governors needing self-control, nobody? We think that just because someone is voted into office or holds some power that this is not something that they wrestle with as well. Like these people who hold authority like they're human beings and they love the taste of power too. You you follow me? The same gospel message needs to be preached to all mankind. It's not a different gospel message to people who are in power. Important people don't get a different gospel message. Celebrities don't get a different gospel message. Everybody gets the same message, repent and turn to Jesus. It doesn't matter how important you are or how much power you hold. So Paul knows this and he's preaching to this guy and he starts reasoning with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And what is Felix's response? He is alarmed. And he says, go away for the present and and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he had kind of hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and they conversed with him. So following the trial, Paul is in Caesarea and he's meeting with the governor and discussing Christianity regularly. And I got to give you a little background on this guy named Felix, okay? So him and his wife, Drusilla, Felix was born a slave. Him and his brother were born as slaves in the Roman culture and a future emperor's mom saw fit to set them free, so they won their freedom. And in that freedom, so this guy named Felix, who was born a slave, now became a free man, rose into prominence and power, and got this assignment as governor over this region in Judea. Now, let's think for a second. Is there another story in history about the value of being born as a slave and then someone purchasing your freedom only to rise to something that was previously better than your old life. I'm telling you, the gospel message was interesting to Felix. This is why he was familiar with it, because he's hearing his own story in the gospel presentation, probably by guys like Cornelius and Philip. But here's something else, his wife Drusilla, she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, he was the guy who murdered the apostle James earlier in the book of Acts. And at this time, she was about 19 years old and on her second marriage. Yeah, times were different. Times were way different. This won't even be her last marriage, they'll both be married again after this. But the way that they got together was that Felix was married to somebody, he didn't really like his wife, and Drusilla was married to somebody, she was young, didn't really like her husband. And so Felix and Drusilla kind of fell in love at one of these Roman parties, and Felix started writing love letters to Drusilla and asking her to leave her husband and come marry him. And she did it. And she moved to this resort location in Caesarea right on the beach. And she's probably thinking she's got her perfect life and they're throwing parties and they're this young cosmopolitan couple. They liked popularity and prestige. And then there's this guy who shows up and he's preaching a message of righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And the word that we're told that Felix His response to this message, Felix, was alarmed. That word in Greek is emphabos, and it means, it it refers to the panic experience in having to flee from an overpowering force. See, he wasn't just like, oh, that's that's quite a message. He listened to Paul's message, and he realized that his entire way of living would have to change if he followed Jesus. That what was being required of him meant that he could no longer be who he was. He would have to let that person die. And his wife would have to let that person die. And all their cosmopolitan parties and all of their social statuses, all of that would have to die because they would be trading it in for something eternally more great, uh, uh, more valuable. So, so what did Felix do? Well, he didn't repent. He kept on asking Paul to come back, they conversed often, and his, his, his motive for this ultimately was he wanted Paul to pay him off. And I'm bringing this up because I feel like it's evidence of the way that God is working in normal life. Why are we having to read about a court case and Paul being in prison? Because we need to see that God thought he thought it valuable to put someone in Felix's life to preach him the gospel. God loved Felix so much that he sent him a man to tell him the truth, even though Felix didn't want to hear the truth. So here's what we've got. You've got these big star struck moments in the Bible and that we could probably identify in our own individual life, these huge moments that you just can't miss that you don't really need a master's degree to say that's got God's fingerprints on it. Of course, it's God parting the Red Sea. No other way about it. We have eyes to see that. But do we also have eyes to see God's fingerprints on a coworker's broken marriage? Are we so trained to be able to identify the things that even non-believers can see are God is, is God working? Are we so trained on that that we've become deficient in actually being a, to identify the ways and the things that God is doing in our own individual lives, which includes our families? Are you so interested in what God is doing outside of your home that you have ignored what God is doing inside of your home? Do you even know what the Lord is speaking to your children about? Do you even care? Are you more interested in what he has to say to somebody else's children, that they need to hear this and they need to do this, that you're missing what he's trying to speak through you to your children? Are you more interested on somebody else's failing marriage are you, are you fixated on that at the expense of your own marriage falling apart? Are you so convinced that God is only working out there that it is impossible that he could be working right here, right now? These little moments are the things that I think that this text is inviting us to consider. The little conversations that don't seem like they're very valuable or important, but they thread the needle for the majority of what God is doing in the lives of his people. Now jump down to 27. I want to finish out this in 12. It says, when two years had lapsed, Felix had succeeded, was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do with the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So this little moment lasted two years. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem for Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case again to Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he... Be summoned him to Jerusalem because we were planning an ambush to kill him along the way. And Festus replied, and Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and he himself intended to go there. So the Jews are saying, hey, um, can we get you, now that you're a new guy in town, can you do us a favor and and send this prisoner that you've had for two years down to us so we can try him? He says, no, but you can come up to Caesarea, and we do it all again. So he said, let the men of the authority among you, this is verse 5, go down with him go down with me and is there anything wrong about the man? Let him bring charges against him." And after he stayed there for a little while, about eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So they took him up on his offer. They're having another trial. And we're saying, oh, the whole situation seems hopeless. What is going on? He's got another trial. This is happening again. We've got more trials, more politics, except we're reminded of Acts twenty-three, eleven, where the, the Lord said to Paul, take courage, you must testify in Rome. So is Paul getting exhausted? No, Paul's not getting exhausted. Because he knows exactly what the Lord is doing in the normal, mundane things of everyday life. And he's, putting together an opportunity for God to fulfill the one thing that he told Paul to do, which is go to Rome. And watch how he fulfills it. So when these guys had arrived, verse 7, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around and bringing many serious charges against him that could not be proven. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any defense, excuse me, any offense. But Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on the charges before me? And Paul said, nope. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong and as yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Now is Paul using his rights as a Roman citizen to get out of death or avoiding the nonsense of another trial? No. No. What's happening here is the exact same thing that happened in Macedonia. When Paul's looking around for the next missionary field to go and plant churches in, he tries to go through this door, but it's closed. Asia, off limits. He tries to go north into Bithynia, closed door. All right, Lord, well, I'm gonna keep looking for doors until one of them is open. And suddenly he gets a vision of a man from Macedonia, and he goes over and walks through that door. This is what's happening. Paul is patiently waiting for two years because he knows that the Lord is working through him on the life of Felix. And so he's patient. He's waiting for the open door and the open door is, how do I get to Rome? Another trial starts up and the question is asked, what do you want to do? And he says, I'm going to use my right to appeal to Caesar because that will get me to Rome that's the door he walks through. Now this is fascinating because this seems too ordinary or it also seems like it may just be the wrong choice. It's not very spiritual. There's no angel showing up here. There's no, uh, nobody's having like some vision. No, one, no prophet is coming in and, and giving some word to Paul. It's just real normal and in fact, it seems like maybe the wrong door to walk through, because the Caesar that he appeals to is this guy named Nero. See, this event I don't to lose you, please follow this. This event takes place in '59, AD 59. Nero is the Caesar at AD 59. In AD 64, a fire breaks out in Rome, and Nero blames the Christians for it and goes on a rampage, persecuting Christians, taking human beings, Christians, and putting them on the side of the road and lighting their heads on fire to make them as human candles to light the way into the city. He feeds them to lions. This is the same guy Paul is appealing to. And it only took five years for the entire climate of Christianity to descend that quickly. This is the decision. This is the door Paul is walking through. And so I'm making this statement today because I have one goal for this message, and it is to argue one case, and that it is God is clearly moving in some of the most ordinary, boring, normal life events that you could possibly imagine. And if you choose to skip over those events, you will miss what he is doing in your life if all you're trying to do is find out how you can spend less time with your kids, you are going to miss the things that God is doing in you and through you through those children. Follow me. There is, there there are, there are few things in this world that are greater at growing your faith than parenting children. And if you just say, I'm going to have someone else do that because is too messy and I don't have time for that, then go ahead and just just know you have now capped your faith. You will not grow beyond the things that you have told God I'm not gonna do. Now this is the ugly truth, because as Americans, we think we can have everything. We can do it all and we don't have to make any compromises, but that is not the truth. Every time you say yes to something, you are you are without even realizing it oftentimes saying no to something else. You can't listen. The Bible is clear. You can't have everything. You can't follow Jesus and also satisfy your flesh. You can't shepherd your kids well and raise them in the ways of the Lord if you're not there to actually shepherd them in the ways of the Lord. If you're not, and I'm not talking about being there every second of the day. What I'm talking about is being so present in their life that you continue to earn the, the, the ability to speak into their life even as they continue to grow so that they are the ones that they, 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 they bounce ideas off of you rather than running to Google to see what the world says about a specific issue. But that doesn't happen just because you, you paid for some massive Disney vacation one time. That happens because every single night, everybody is sitting around the dinner table talking about their thoughts and their feelings and the events of the day. Now look, there was a time when this wasn't radical. This is, there was a time when most people did this. But we have lived, we have in, in injected so much of our life and our consciousness into our phones and things outside of the home that we have stopped seeing the value of discipleship within the home. And I'm telling you that that idea was birthed in here. When you put your kids to bed at night, you're talking about the Lord. That means you've got to be there to tuck them in. Like, that's what that means when they wake up you're talking about the lord as you're going along your day you're talking about the lord it is a constant reinforcing of the truth every moment you get it is the reinforcing of these little moments that god is working through and if you say those are not that the, if you say they're not valuable they're they're not that extravagant or they're not they're not worth my time or i'd rather be doing something big with my time i'm here to tell you that you will not grow in the way that he wants you to grow because there is a way that he has structured his people to grow and you will not find fertile soil out of it. I wish I had something different to tell you. I wish I had good news. I wish I could just pat you on the back and say everything you're doing is great. Just keep on doing it. And if you want to take on nine more things, do it. You, you can do anything you want, but the truth is you can't do everything you want. You can't be anything you want. You can be what God has created you to be, or you can exalt yourself above his plan and be whatever you want to be, and there will be eternal punishment for that. That's what this says. And if you're gonna make the decision to walk away from the life of being single and step into marriage, then you need to understand what that means. That means you're trading in your own selfish desires to satisfy the desires of someone else, to join in covenant with somebody so that it's not about you anymore. It's about joining in covenant with somebody else. And the fruit of that sometimes is children. And what that means is that your life isn't about you anymore. And there is, that's good news. That's great news. But somebody else told you something different. Somebody told you that you could get married and you could still do your own thing. Somebody told you that you can have kids and it doesn't matter. You can still spend all of your disposable income on your own hobbies and your own things and, and it doesn't really matter. Somebody lied to you. I'm here to tell you the truth. And the truth is that God is inviting you to join him in the most normal, everyday moments of life and to fix your eyes on him in those moments. You, you, we as a people have to stop chasing experiences and just enjoy the fact that we are God's people. So we've got a guy like Felix who's presented with these opportunities and he procrastinates and his conviction becomes dull and we, we, we don't see, he, he never gets saved. Nothing ever comes of it. We see these moments like Paul where he is not just looking for these miraculous miracles that are cornerstones of his ancestors' faith. He's seeing God moving in the most beautiful, mundane, normal aspects of life. And the invitation for us today is to ask the Lord to give you eyes to see him working in the little things. Can you see his fingerprints in the little things? You see him moving at work. Can you see him moving in your kids' lives? Can you see him moving in your spouse's life? Can you see him moving while you're sitting in traffic? Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.